want to express a word of appreciation for this opportunity to be among you. Received a call this week from uh, uh, Tom uh, Kimball. No, I'm not Tom Kimball. He was scheduled to be here, as uh, you know, and of course he received word that his sister had passed away uh, this week. So I had to make a quick trip, both he and Connie, to, uh, to Atlanta. But he will be back with you next week, as I understand, and the following week. Uh, my name is Mark Vale, my wife Anne. Uh, uh, I retired in 2004 in this annual conference. It seems unbelievable I'm about ready to start my 10th year of retirement. Um, all the time flies. And uh, served uh, churches here in this conference. And uh, I, I, I was thinking uh, in the earlier service, I shared this story about this uh, gentleman, uh, elderly gentleman that uh, lived in this little western town and uh, for 50 years, he lived in the same house, which was quite a contrast from uh, our life uh, as an itinerant pastor. Uh, so 50 years, and then suddenly he decided to move in the house right next door to the surprise of many people, and including uh, the local newspaper. And uh, so a reporter from the paper came out to interview him and ask him several questions about his life, including why in the world did you move after 50 years from this one house into this one next door to it? And after a moment uh, of pause, uh, he replied, uh, I guess it's the gypsy in my soul. And as I shared in the early service, uh, some of our family uh, kind of considers uh, Anna and myself as sort of gypsies because we've moved quite a bit. In retirement, we moved to Florida for three years and then to Ohio for four years. We've been here for a little over a year now, but we're moving back to Ohio. So somebody told me in retirement, you're usually going to have three places that you live, but we're, we're, we're going beyond that at this point, I think. So. And... Um, as I was also sharing in the early service, for over 50 years, uh, I have um, been involved in reading and being uh, deeply involved with theology and biblical studies. And since I've retired, I, I, I've just been very fond of reading uh, novels, one mystery novel after another. And my, my favorite author is uh, David Baldacci. How many have heard of David Baldacci before? There's a few of you here. Uh, he has a, uh, has a way of writing about Conspiracies, at least uh, uh, in that one book, uh, The Camel Club, and, and a few others that followed that. So I was quite enamored with that whole concept or idea of uh, conspiracy. And with that, let us pray. Well, gracious God, I pray that the words of my mouth this very day, as well as the meditations that are in our hearts, might indeed be acceptable in your sight. Our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. I asked uh, Jerry, who I've known Jerry before, and I know that he's uh, such a gracious volunteer, and uh, so I asked if he'd be uh, a guinea pig for me today, uh, because I wanted to share this uh, rather classic story that uh, apparently was attributed to the spiritualist uh, Thomas Merton. Uh, but at any rate... Um, the story goes that there was this gentleman uh, uh, that wanted to learn how to walk on a tightrope. And he got this notion that he was going to cross Niagara Falls on a, a, a tightrope. Uh, but he had not done it before, so he had to do quite a bit of practicing. He set up a couple poles in his backyard and, 
Every day he'd be practicing walking back and forth. And of course he had a net underneath to catch him when he would fall. And uh, he had a next door neighbor, uh, Jerry, right over here, Jerry. And uh, Jerry was really his number one fan. He was so excited. He, when he got home from work, he'd just rush to his backyard and look over the fence and watch his next door neighbor practicing the tightrope uh, feet. Well, finally, he perfected uh, walking across and back on the tightrope. And then, uh, after that, he took a wheelbarrow and started practicing the tightrope walk with the wheelbarrow, pushing it across and back. And, of course, the net was underneath, and at times he did fall to begin with, but fortunately the wheelbarrow did not fall on him. But he finally perfected that as well. And then, by that time, uh, not only Jerry was there in Jerry's backyard and on the other side, but other neighbors and people from the community and even the media got wind of this. And there, It got to be like a three-ring circus on their block. And uh, after practicing with the wheelbarrow, he took about 175 pounds of bricks and put them in the wheelbarrow and continued, continued to practice uh, the tightrope uh, uh, feet, pushing the wheelbarrow with the bricks Across and back, across and back. He perfected that, and finally the big day came to go across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. And guess who was there, right there in front and center, his number one fan, Jerry. And uh, just before he attempted this great endeavor of crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope, he turned uh, to his next-door neighbor, his number one fan, and said, Jerry, do you believe I can do it? And, okay. and then he asked him one more time, Jerry, do you really believe I can do it? Okay, climb in my wheelbarrow. <laughs> Climbing in the wheelbarrow of faith. I think in a very real sense, that is what God is calling us to do. What Jesus was urging us to do as well. The climb in the wheelbarrow faith. To, to place our life on the line, so to speak. To get fully involved in God's kingdom of grace and goodness is at the heart of God's desire. And when I think of all this in the context of the church and, and what it means to be in ministry together, uh, I think of it in terms of uh, Donald E. Mezzer. Messer's uh, thought about uh, doing ministry together, which he calls a conspiracy for goodness. Or in the title of his book, which has, is similar, it's called Conspiracy of Goodness. And it's in that book that uh, he says, we usually associate words like conspire and conspiracy with negative connotations, like you pick up in David Baldacci's books and other situations. Literally, conspire means to breed together. You were listening to my message earlier, weren't you? <laughs> to breathe together. Let's, let's all breathe together right now. That's what it means to conspire. To be in conspiracy for goodness. To, to work intimately together in joint action. When Christians respond to God's call to join in the divine mission of liberating love, uh, Mezzer says, the church engages in a conspiracy of goodness that transcends earthly political powers. 
The church in mission in the world, uh, the, the church in mission to the world runs the risk of being subversive, he says, conspiring to bring good amidst evil, compassion amidst violence and hatred, peace amidst war. Careful reading of Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 12 um, leads me to think that this is, in a sense, what Paul was encouraging us to do. Paul begins, as you see in that passage that was read to you this morning, encouraging us to have our very lives be an offering to God. I like the way that Eugene Peterson expresses in his um, a paraphrased version of the Bible, the message. He writes, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Now Donald Mezer assures us in his book that everyone can be a vessel of God, God's loving and liberating uh, mission to the world. As he goes on to say, God needs people who are in business uh, to, to give their best in terms of what they're doing. He talks about people who are professionals need to be ready to serve not only individual human needs, but also to ensure that their professions have the highest of ethical standards. And he goes on to say, God needs students willing to surrender their lives into full-time service before, uh, for the church and also for humanity. He says, even a person confined to a bed in a convalescent home can at least write letters in protest. Uh, letters uh, to uh, Amnesty International to protest uh, uh, torture and other global um, uh, violations of human rights. The manifold possibilities are there for fighting uh, world hunger and the madness of the, of, of the uh, arms race. God calls people you see to, to uh, both uh, large and uh, great uh, as well as small tasks, long-term as well as shorter, uh, those of shorter duration. God calls all of us, you see, in, in this aspect of ministry together. Together. You know, when, when I started out in, in ministry uh, there was this notion that, that pastors are to do the ministry and the laity are to be the receivers of that ministry. And, and this just simply defies the gospel, uh, defies what Jesus intended as he gathered around his disciples. Not only those uh, uh, 12 that uh, encircled his life on those three years, but all the others. Keep in mind there were more disciples than just the twelve. Keep in mind there was a large crowd of people, people who followed Jesus and participated in the ministry in given moments and times. I received my uh, ARP uh, bulletin, and some of you may have received your ARP bulletin just recently, and uh, I was reminded uh, by that ARP bulletin, there's an article in there, uh, reminding uh, the readers that uh, this coming August or this next month is the 50th anniversary of uh, the March on Washington. And of that, uh, that great speech delivered by Martin Luther King Jr., perhaps the, 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 the greatest speech ever delivered. And we cannot help but think of the significance of his life 
as it was intertwined with the lives of others to bring about a conspiracy of goodness. He was an ordinary person acting in an extraordinary way. And though King has been immortalized in larger-than-life proportions, he would have been the first to say, I'm just simply an ordinary man called of God to uh, stand against the evils of society in the world, to take issue with those things, and to express God's goodness and grace in the midst of all that. He epitomized as well as any what it means to be a living sacrifice. And those of us who are gathered here this day can think of other people, perhaps, people that we know, people, famous people, people who have never been known before. Those kinds of people who have been willing to be living sacrifices, reflecting God's grace and goodness in the midst of the darkest corners of this world. Now, Paul, of course, encourages, us all, encourages not only us to be living sacrifices, as you notice from that passage that was read to you today from the 12th chapter, but also to have the capacity to be in the world, but not of the world. I often, uh, when I think of that particular section of the passage, I think of Anne's mother. Anne said, her mother always would say, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And she, she epitomized that kind of thing. She reflected that kind of thing in terms of her own faith journey. Referring to Eugene Peterson's uh, the message again, this is the way he put it. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from inside out. When we talk about uh, the mission of the United Methodist Church is to, tr- to, be, uh, to transform the world uh, in terms of our presence, that we need to keep in mind sometimes we also need to be transformed. We need to be turned around or turned inside out. What I fear so often happens is that in our effort to convert the world, we sometimes become converted, converted by the world. That is, we become so worldly in a sense that we simply adapt to it so much so that, that when we are called by God to ruffle the feathers of this world, so to speak, or to stand against the injustices or other evils that prevail, we are reluctant to do so for fear of what might happen to us or what others might say about us, for fear of being ostracized or whatever it might be. Those kind of things will hold us back from being a part of a conspiracy of goodness for the best of the world and for all of us. You know, it was one of those unforgettable moments several years ago. I was on the staff at First United Methodist Church in Park Ridge, Illinois. Now, Park Ridge, Illinois was a very um, upper crust community just outside of Chicago. And that was a church, by the way, that Hillary Clinton came out of, uh, out of her childhood and her youth. And her parents, uh, the bottoms, were members of that church. I was on the staff. There were five of us, five pastors on the staff. I was the minister of youth at the bottom, bottom of the rung, so to speak. But I remember we, we held a series uh, the year, one of the years there on uh, black power and civil rights. And uh, at that particular point in Chicago, there was uh, a lot of effort uh, to provide open housing. That was a major issue for the city of Chicago. And um, 
We had a speaker there that night who was uh, most probably would consider rather radical, and he was taking the local church, or taking us really, to task for being too timid. And there was a person in the, in the gathering that night that uh, wanted to uh, provide a rebuttal to his criticism. And uh, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune about the inner city nuns who had been engaged in this, uh, this effort with open housing in Chicago. And I'll never forget the speaker's response to this woman who was providing the rebuttal to his criticism. He simply said, will all the nuns please stand up? You could hear a, a, a pin drop in the room that night. And he spoke to every one of us, realizing our failure to be on the line on behalf of humanity. Well, Messer says in his book, at best the church responds to a conspiracy of goodness in the spirit and the name of Christ to care for all persons and all creation, participating in deeds of kindness, justice, and mercy means identifying with God's liberating and loving initiatives to the world. Just about every congregation I served as pastor, I reminded the people that our, our, our real mission is not only to love Jesus, but to love as Jesus loved. You know, it's a lot easier to love Jesus and to, than to love as Jesus loved. And that was my challenge. I don't care what, what our mission statement uh, uh, expressed, but at the heart of it was to be able to love as Jesus loved, to be able to take seriously these words of the prophet Micah and what was required of us, to take seriously the teachings of Jesus, to take seriously what Paul is talking about in terms of being a living sacrifice and not being so much a part of the world that we forget who we really are and who has called us in the first place. And so in order to do just that, we cannot afford to be too worldly or too conform to the worldly ways that we end up simply talking the talk without walking the walk. Our leaven becomes weak and our salt loses its savor is the way that the writer and bishop, William Willman, puts it. Nothing short of the transformation of our own minds is required of us. Transformation of our minds in Christ Jesus. Now Paul also encourages us to, to, uh, to assert our unity amidst our diversity. Ann and I participate in the uh, life of the Centennial United Methodist Church. And a few years ago, Centennial was, had, had the distinction of being the most diverse congregation in United Methodism. I, I don't know if that's still true or not, but it sure seems like it. And, and that diversity is really important. It, it reminds us that we're all in this together, to breathe together, to be in joint action together. What we can do together in terms of our commonality in the spirit of the one who calls us together in the first place far exceeds what we can do just apart or by ourselves. When, what, what Martin Luther King Jr. did as a spokesperson for the liberating efforts of the civil rights movement would never have gotten off the ground without some other strategic people and other groups of people that worked alongside him. 
And he would have been the first to admit that. And the linking of bodies of, and hearts and minds, uh, a conspiracy of goodness was brought about. Remember again those words of Donald Mezer. Literally, conspire means to what? To breathe together. Or to work intimately together in joint action. The emphasis that Paul makes, as you can see from the scripture, is, uh, is upon this unity. Uh, this being the body of Christ. Eugene Peterson expressed it this way in that uh, paraphrased version, the message. In this way, we are like the various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we are talking about is Christ's body of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body. But as a chopped off finger or a cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? He asks. And then he says, so since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts of Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be. Without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. It's important to acknowledge our diversity, our differences, and our uniqueness, but not at the expense of forgetting or foregoing our unity in Jesus' name. Not forgetting that. I shared one church that was horrible at receiving new people. Just horrible at receiving new people. And so, hardly a Sunday would, would go by uh, without me reminding them that every person that walks through this door is a brother and sister of yours. Every person outside those doors is a brother and sister of yours. You've got brothers and sisters around the world. Don't forget that they too want to be a part of the body and they have something to offer to the body of Christ. It's important to acknowledge our diversity, our differences and uniqueness, but not at the expense of forgetting our unity. That which brings us together in the first place. I believe this has sometimes been a thread or or one of the melodies of United Methodism and perhaps some other denominations. We have so celebrated and emphasized our diversity that we at times have lost sight of our common grounding and our commitment to breathe together. This can happen locally as an individual congregation and it can also happen globally as a denomination. We've become so adept at fighting with one another. We've been fighting with one another for years. In fact, the church, people in the church for over 2,000 years have been fighting with one another. So it's nothing new for us. And yet we sometimes get so involved with fighting one another that we forget who we really are as Jesus people. I mean, really, at the last general conference, they couldn't even adopt an agreement to agree to disagree as United Methodists. Perhaps they have forgotten who had called them there in the first place, you suppose? At least some people maybe did.
Well, the final thing that Paul encourages us is to exercise the marks of being a true Christian. That's what I I called all those things that were shared in the passage uh, today with you in Romans 12. The marks of a true Christian. It's a long list of specifics, beginning with love being sincere uh, or genuine and overcoming evil with good. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it is the way Eugene Peterson says it. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Don't fake it. Paul, in other words, was saying, be authentic in your commitment to the faith. Be demonstrable, connecting with what you say, with what you do. I thought of some words that uh, Lloyd Ogilvie wrote years ago. He wrote several books, and some of you may know he served as a chaplain of the U.S. Senate for a period of time. And I always remember these words. He, he wrote this. He said, witnessing is not just spouting concepts or outlining uh, faith. He said, witnessing is not just spouting all this. He said, it is profound caring for and sometimes suffering with and for people. People are first on God's agenda. They are the focus of the movement into which we are called. The Holy Spirit is not given until we are witnesses. There's an old Chinese proverb that says that if you have vision for a year, plant corn. If you have vision for 10 years, plant a tree. But if you have vision for a lifetime, plant people. That kind of says it, doesn't it? In terms of what we are called to do. So how about it? Are you ready to climb into the wheelbarrow of faith? Jerry is. (laughs) Are you ready to be living sacrifices on behalf of God's kingdom for here and now in this place and beyond this place and throughout the world? So be it. Amen.